right, how are you doing? Good, all right. Hear me. How many people have been to a Giants game? All right. What happens, uh, what happens um, uh, seventh inning stretch? What, what do people usually do? Sing. What, what do people typically sing? Take me out to the ball game or, or, or Macarena or, you know, what, I, I don't know. It, it's something, right? It's a seventh inning stretch. It's like, hey, you've been here for a while. You've been hanging in there, been getting into the game, got a bit more to go. It's getting intense, getting close, whatever. And so we're just going to take, take a breather and kind of back up a bit. That's where we are going through the Gospel of John. We're at the seventh inning stretch. Okay, um, from chapters 1 to 11, what we've been looking through, these have been called the typically the book of signs. John's making a case saying, hey, this is the Messiah. And, and there's all sorts of people who are going to be reading this with all sorts of different expectations. Who is God? Who should God be like? Everybody has their expectations and, and it needs to change. So John presents the Messiah in many different ways. Presents presents Christ as God incarnate, the I am, the Jehovah from the Old Testament. So there's a whole angle there. We'll, we'll get to that later. And he, he says there's seven, he says there's a million things I could draw attention to, but I'm going to pick seven that tells you what kind of God this is. The last big sign, the last miraculous event, what we saw last week was the raising of Lazarus. Not a resurrection, because Lazarus is going to die again. Okay, resurrection is when we have new life, when we have life of the age to come, when, when that, that's relationship with God. Um, what we saw was Lazarus was a resuscitation. So basically, the life that we know is broken, and everyone gets that it's broken, it breaks more, and then it stops. And so what Jesus had been doing is saying, um, I am rolling back all the symptoms, all the effects of darkness, of, of, of sin, of being disconnected from God. We don't necessarily live or, or are aware of what's going on in the spiritual world, so the physical world in which we live and is broken, Jesus is saying, look, Pick up your palate and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Um, come back to life. You know, it's just all the effects that we've grown accustomed to in our life. Jesus is saying these are intruders. These are imposters. He's rolling them back physically so people can see, wow, he has authority to do this spiritually. Uh, his life is his own. And it sets up who is this Messiah. Well, at, from chapters 12 to the end of the book, we, we have a focus into the last maybe six days, seven days of Jesus' life, and, and then a little bit of time after the resurrection. And John is like the auteur, the director. He, he's been filming things out of sequence. We have the cleansing of the temple, which is actually, if we're doing a chronological order, would, would happen um, next week or the week after, but it, he started out the gospel with that. And, and there's all these different ways that he's saying, this is the life of Jesus, but I'm going to present it this, in this order to show you the kind of Messiah. So moving from the big sweep of the kingdom, the first 11 chapters, the big question of who is this Messiah, what kind of God rolls this way, now we zoom in. And so this is sort of the, um, coming into the home stretch, where, where the director is really the, the second half of the movie, where it just picks up the pace and it gets raw and it gets intimate and it gets it gets it's real. And so this is the seventh inning stretch and very fascinating story that separates the two. We have the resurrection of Lazarus, the greatest evidence thus presented for, man, there's God amongst us. And now we're moving into this intimate up close to what is most important uh, on Jesus's 
mind? What does he most want us to know? Because if we only had the first 11 chapters, we would think, I got to do this and I got to do this and I have to know this and recognize. And he's saying, okay, that's a starting point. But, but how does it play out in our lives? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in John chapter 12 and looking, say we'll look at the first eight verses. Okay, I'm going to go old school today. So if you could follow along in your um, e-readers in front of you. I uh, wish I had a page, but uh, Book of John, chapter 12. Uh, table of contents, awesome, awesome help. You ever, you ever, um, you ever visit church or you're in church, and we're going to be studying uh, uh, Haggai or Habakkuk or uh, Hezekiah. It's a joke. Hezekiah's not in the Bible. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> Jackson 5, first hesitations, whatever. Um, but, but you mentioned Old Testament book, and you're just like... Phew, 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 phew. And you're just feeling like an ignoramus, like you don't belong. Table of contents, totally. It's a great cheat. I'm just, just saying. Anyway, John 12.1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Let's pray. Father, teach us by your spirit from your word into our lives the difference that you have made and how we can best reflect that in our intimacy in our surrender, in our trust, and in living for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so the whole second part, the, the, the jumping off point of we're saying, now here's an up close, we're zooming in, HD TV, we're seeing the pores of Jesus' cheek now. Before it was kind of, you know, these people moving around and now it's, we zero in, why this story? We have to realize this is a huge impact. Anybody remember how the story kicked off last week when we were talking about um, the, the resurrection of uh, Lazarus? How was Mary introduced? Okay, this is chapter 12, chapter 11. So before this happened, how was Mary introduced? Okay, John wrote his book. It was one of the... Um, one of the later, it was the, the last of the Gospels written. And uh, it, was, it was written fairly late. Uh, and... Even though it was probably maybe 30, 40 years uh, that the events had occurred and, and John was writing, by the time he was writing, the story of what Mary did that we read just now, pouring the perfume on Jesus, was so big, was so monster. She was such a rock star that he couldn't introduce Mary earlier without connecting the dots that, no, it was this Mary. This is the Mary we're talking about. Mary, mother of Jesus, yeah, whatever. Mary Magdalene, whatever. Mary, wife of Clopas, who cares? Mary. Sister of Lazarus and Martha, that Mary, whoa, are you serious? She's the one that did that? Her? Okay, I'm all ears now, I want to, and so this was such a big event in the early church. In fact, in, in a parallel uh, passage, Jesus says, uh, 
Every time the gospel is told, she's going to be in the front of it. She's going to be part of the story. What she did, her act of sacrifice, her get it factor is going to be told alongside me. And so from the, from the get-go or from when John was writing this, this is big. This was a story. This was, this was important. And so this brings us back what was going on that generations would remember this act among all the other crazy stuff that was going on. We need to realize how extravagant, how ridiculous this act was, first and foremost. It says she had perfume. Um, it, it, perfume was kept in sort of these stone jars about like this called unguents. I, I don't know, it's a new word, I guess. And, uh, and in order to use it, you had to really, you had to break the top and all of it was going to be used, which is great for daily perfume and whatnot. Now, we have to understand back in the day, um, this is before Axe body spray was invented. This is before deodorant, before soap, before shampoo. Uh, what was the climate? Super hot, right? Um, and what was the condition? Super dusty. So no hygiene products, super hot, a lot of manual labor, lots of sweat, lots of dust. What do you have? Pleasant close fellowship. That's what you have. Get in here close, buddy. Yeah. Woo. Um, and so what you would do when guests came over, it'd be like, whoa, whoo. Oh, I'm going to go back to cutting onions so my eyes don't water so much. You would offer somebody an anointment. And an anointing would be, it was this flavored oil, olive oil or something with some spice put in. And, and dudes would put it on their beard or they'd have it run down. You're already gooey, you're already sweaty, like what's the big deal? And so it would be this fragrant aroma so you didn't have to smell yourself, which you got used to, but nobody else did. And so it was pleasant. Anointing always occurred in festive ceremonies. In the Old Testament, where do we have anointing? King David, yeah, where else? Priest, Aaron was anointed, right? What other anointings? Yeah, always, always when kings, it's a party, it's a festivity, it's a celebration. We have a new king. God is doing something amazing. Um, we, we have access to God through the priesthood. Um, hey, welcome to my house. Thanks for bringing the Doritos. Have some anointing. And, and you just, you know, a, couple, a dab will do you and you're in and the next person have an anointing or pass the anointing around when you're in fellowship. It's festive. It's good. And so this was a typical thing that everyone would do just because of the situation. This perfume said it was ridiculously, unbelievably expensive, more expensive. These, these are all pretty poor people we're talking about here. Years wages just on one bottle of perfume. Do you guys know what the most expensive perfume you can currently buy in the world today? Do you know what it is? Oh, okay, well, oh, I was going to say be sure you're tithing if you do because, uh, yeah, I, I, had to look, I had to look it up myself. Um, Clive Christian. And the most expensive perfume, it go, it's sold, you, the smallest amount you can get is 16.4 ounces, but the price is per ounce, $12,000 per ounce. And, and here's, the, here's the deal, um, which Amex black card should I put it on? The, the, um, that's a lot of money, but the bottle does have a five carat diamond on it, is lined with pure gold. And, um, and has something else, like what else would you need? So that's just, you know, extra. So $12,000 an ounce. That's pretty darn close to what we're talking about here. Three ounces, four ounces, five ounces. Years wages. Poor people. What's going on here? And so she wasted the whole thing. 
It was a year's wages. How did she even get this? This was the nest egg for the family. What's going on? And it's all done in a moment. And everybody in the house knew it. It was there. So just the staging of the act was so outrageous, so over the top, so unnecessary, so short-sighted. And so everybody was just sort of provoked by this. To better understand what's going on here, because I think this is a reveal. God brings something into our life, and it reveals our hearts. It's sort of a checkup on where are we really? How do we see this? Is it an offense? Is it an encouragement? Is it a reminder? How do we, how do we respond? And so that's what's going on here. Paul played upon this theme of um, us being called out when, when something's in our face. What's the, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. What's the, uh, what's the sense most intimately associated with memory? I heard it. Smell. Do you agree? You see something. What is that? Is that that kind of looks familiar. Who is, oh, it's my doppelganger. Oh, I'm looking in a mirror. So, so you see things and you're kind of figuring them out. Ah, I heard that song before. Won't you stand your, no, wait. Oh, wait, copyright. See, you, you hear songs. You know, there's the same song. Are they different? Kind of out there. Okay, am I feeling this? But smell, whoa! It, it just takes you right back. Good smell, bad smell, whatever it is. Have you just smelled something you haven't smelled in years? And you're thinking of memories you hadn't thought about for decades. Am I the only one? Okay, part of it is because the, the nerve, olfactory nerve is the shortest nerve that sticks right into the brain. So we have this monster trunk just plugging it in. And, and, and God made us that way on purpose. And so the sense of smell just Boom, putting us right there. Paul plays upon this. And he plays upon something. I've read it before, um, but this, this is, I find really helpful in understanding what's going on. Uh, he talks about an event that people experience once in their life, and it had to do with smell, and he brings out the spiritual dimension. We find this in 2 Corinthians um, 2, starting with verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Okay, God always leads us in his triumph. Which I find surprising that the flagship car that God leads us in is a British sports car. I, um, the early church moved over to Honda, right? We all move in one accord. I know they're old jokes, but um, it just, you might as well make a joke like that. What does that mean, God leads us in his triumph? Is that the same one he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden in? I mean, we don't, we relate to triumph as much as anyone else would. That doesn't make sense. That's because it should be a capital T. It was referring to a state parade that the Roman Empire would do. And it occurred so infrequently, and it was the biggest party on the block, and, and it was the defining moment of a lifetime. It was called the triumph. The triumph happened when there was a commanding general that won a major victory that, that brought in like all of Germany or France or Britain, huge areas of land that were, that were um, brought into the Roman Empire. The commanding general had to be fighting with his troops. It had to be a decisive victory. 
there had to be a lot of gold brought into the empire. There were all these conditions that had to be met. And every general, every professional officer wanted to be the one with the triumph. And so what would happen is that months later, they would all come back to Rome and all of the empire would turn out. And it was this massive, if you thought the um, three-peat was a big parade, it was nothing compared to the triumph. And during the triumph, it would be all the troops uh, with the, from the legion that, that was victorious. And, and there was just People were throwing stuff and throwing themselves at the soldiers, and it was the rock stars and heroes. Then it was all the captives that were being let off. Then it was all the exotic animals. Then it was all the riches. And then it was the commanding general, and behind him was a slave. And the slave would hold this, this you know, kind of Olympian, this garland over his head, whispering, all glorious fleeting, all glorious fleeting, all glorious fleeting. Because, and that, that final one was a stipulation from Caesar, who didn't want his commanding general getting any fancy ideas. Hey, this glory stuff is pretty cool. I think I'm just going to camp out in Rome and be Caesar myself. So that was the glory, that was the triumph. But they had these massive braziers. I don't want to say braziers. Massive braziers. Um, big places where they burned things, okay? Um, I'm not talking about the 60s. Big things where they burned things. And um, I mean, like, they would be as large as this entire section right here. That would be one. And they had these all over Rome, and they were filled with incense, and they were burned. And it was a special incense you could only smell during the triumph. And the entire city was filled with, filled with the aroma. And so what Paul is picking up on, everybody knows what a triumph is. They heard about it. Grandpa talked about it. Uh, they experienced it as a kid, and they're now grandpa telling the story. And so this is a big one. And it's saying we experience the fragrance of Christ, just like everybody in Rome experienced this incense only burnt during the triumph. For some, an aroma from death to death. This, the, um, the captives were being led off to execution. And so that aroma meant one thing. They lost, they're defeated, and they're going to die. For the rest of the empire, it was an aroma from life to life. We have conquered. We are stronger. We are more secure. We are, we are more wealthy. This is exactly, everything's going our way, and so we're celebrating that it's better for us. It's the same scent, but it had two radically different responses based on the circumstances of the people that were smelling them. Okay, now let's go back to our story in John 12. We have, it said that the scent of the aroma... Okay, imagine 12,000 an ounce-ish, and this entire thing, bam, knocked open. If I opened something like that up here, people would be like, whoa, got to go. Okay, imagine a smaller room and so much more intense. Everybody smelt this. We have two responses that, that are mentioned, okay? We have the response unto death, and we see this with Judas. Now, have you ever, um, now, now John is editorializing here. The people that originally experienced this and the people that originally heard the story didn't have the benefit of hindsight. Have you ever gone to a movie or a play or something with, with a friend and they knew all along what was going on after, the, after it was over? Oh yeah, I knew the butler did it. It was obvious when you think about it. But they only knew it after it had turned out. They didn't know it along the way. Okay, that's what we have to remember is going on here. John didn't know that Judas was the thief. John didn't know he used to help himself to the box. He didn't know he was a false disciple. He didn't know any of this. He was his brother, man. We're all, we're all together. And so it was only after the fact that John was able to say this is the true motivation to Judas. So the people were just seeing it on face value. And at face value, it was a legit concern. The needs of the few versus the needs of the many, right? A year's wages, how much good could be done for the poor with a year's wages? What do you make in a year? 
Okay, could you do some good with that if you had that amount immediately available to be used for the needs around you? Could you do some, do, do some stuff? Yeah. And so that's a valid point. Um, but it was quick to point out, he was, he was responding not out of concern for the poor, but out of concern for himself. You see, what is revealed in this, it's broken, it's gone. It's, it's, and and this, this, this rage that's elicited is his attitude. There's a right way to do things, but beneath that, um, I need to be in control. And beneath that, I know what is better. It is right. It, it, it's, it's pride. This is the way to do this. Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You should be this kind of Messiah, and I'm going to make it happen. And so there was this sense of even though Judas had experienced Christ, experienced his teachings, knew his teachings, was ministering with Jesus, ministering in his name, knew the word, all of this, his heart was still locked and closed. He couldn't see past himself and his own needs. And so he, w- he was lost to this. This is an aroma unto death. Now we look at an aroma unto life. Jesus said something very curious. Did you pick up on it? Probably not because I, I just don't have it up here. He said, it was intended that she keeps this anointing um, for my burial. Now, the fact he's saying this shows he probably wasn't buried just yet, right? Because otherwise he would have heard, right? So, so he said the intent is that she's going to hold on to this until his burial, which is a week away. And actually, who truly anointed the body of Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus, the two secret disciples among the Pharisees, right? And so, um, so they actually physically anointed the body of Jesus. So what did Jesus mean when he said, Mary, leave her alone. She did, she did good because it was intended that she keeps us for my burial. We have to understand the point that John had been making and building up and building up for this very purpose like a good director was the animosity with the Pharisees, the animosity with the leaders. This was not their kind of Messiah. He did not check in with them first, that he broke boundaries, broke rice bowls. And, and the people could go right to him. They didn't have to hop through all the hoops. So he was a threat, and they weren't seeing this. And it said from that moment on, they plotted to kill him. They plotted to murder him. They were seeking his death. They were afraid of the crowd. Uh, going back to Judah was suicide. And so with intimates like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they would know Jesus it's not going to go well. This is, this, is, this is frightening. This is scary. They are literally trying to kill you, and they're probably going to succeed sooner or later. You are going to die. And so Mary got at least that much, and she saw far better than anyone could possibly know. That it wasn't just, I'm going to keep with propriety and keep some oil, and I'll, I'll, I'll fulfill the law. But it was a heart devotion, which brings us to the second point. There are three accounts in Scripture of a woman who was uh, pouring, uh, was anointing Jesus' feet and and wiping it with her hair. We have three separate accounts. We have an account in Mark 14. It said during the week of Passover in Bethany, um, there was uh, at the home of Simon the leper, uh, there was a meal that was uh, had and... um, And this woman came and anointed the head of Jesus. And then we have what we read in John 12, where it says during the week, or just the week before Passover in Bethany, uh, there was a dinner given in Jesus' honor, and Lazarus was there, and Mary and Martha were were also. And then we have a third account in Luke chapter 7. I've preached on it before. And this is where we have an unclean woman, a sinful woman, who came in. 
in Bethany, just before Passover, uh, a Pharisee invited Jesus to his home. And during that time, an unclean woman, a sinful woman, a woman everyone knew was sinful, came and started anointing Jesus uh, with an, expen- an alabaster jar of super expensive perfume that cost a year's wages, poured it on him, and did not stop kissing and crying and wiping his feet uh, with her hair. In Luke chapter 7, okay, remember, in, in uh, Mark 14, it is the house of Simon the leper. In, um, in our story here in chapter 12 of John, it's just, uh, it was a dinner in Jesus' honor, and here it was a Pharisee invited him. Uh, the Pharisee said, if this man were really a prophet, really from God, he would know what kind of sinful woman touches him. And so Jesus asked him this question, he, he tells him, Ask him a question saying, there were two debtors, one that owed a million dollars and one that owed 50 bucks. Um, They were forgiven of their debts. Who would be more grateful? Well, I suppose the one forgiven more. And so he turns to this sinful woman and says, uh, this woman has been forgiven much. She loves much. You didn't do any of this for me. You took your relationship for granted. You didn't offer me water for my feet. She has not stopped kissing my feet. All of this back and forth. How does he address the Pharisee? Anyone remember? Simon, Simon the leper was the Pharisee. Maybe he was Simon the leper who was healed. Maybe, maybe it was a limbo. Maybe he was out of fellowship. All three accounts are the same account. This radically flips our understanding of Mary around. You see, because if anybody has heard of the story of Martha and Mary, and it's become sort of a Christian catchphrase for the busy one and, and, and the not busy one, the Marthas and the Marys, um, Mary was the sinful woman. Mary was the outcast. And so when we have Mary sitting at the feet, this is much earlier, much earlier in Jesus' life. When we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha rushing around, this wasn't the hungry disciple, um, you know, that got it all right and was in and a good friend of Jesus and the confidant. Mary was the outcast. We have the prodigal sitting at the feet of Jesus discovering the God she never knew, discovering a God that didn't reject her, that didn't throw her away because she didn't do it right, that, that didn't look at her like everyone else did, that didn't use her like everybody else did, that she had value, she had worth, she had dignity. And that's the interchange we see just before in, in Luke 7. That means that when Lazarus was dead and the family is distraught, she is still the unclean, sinful woman. woman. Why is it that Mary came out first and she remained inside? And then she only came out once Jesus sent for her. Could there have been a social stigma? Could there have been a sense of shame that prevented her from doing so? And so finally now we have the post-resurrection of Lazarus. And we have Mary. And we have her as the sinful woman still that everybody sees. And that did not stop her. And now this alabaster jar of perfume that she had. Did she get it through prostitution? That's the implication of the sinful woman. Did she use it to allure in prostitution? And so now there's a stigma and a shame. Who is she? What is she using that on him when it could have been used for that? And you can see where Judas and others are getting worked up. But Jesus didn't see any of that. He saw her heart all along. You see, to Jesus, she was never that sinful woman, that prostitute, that outcast, that lowlife, the one who doesn't belong but beloved Mary. 
you see, there was an intimacy that had been developing between Mary and Jesus. That Mary allowed herself to be known as she is by Jesus. She had been sitting at his feet. She had been soaking up his teaching. She had been following him. She had been serving him. She had been holding her life and who he was in tension with everything that she'd heard about following God. And although she was least welcome and least comfortable in the religious setting, she felt most at home with her Lord. And so there was a degree of intimacy that happened where she could see she was okay not being okay. That she was accepted and loved and cherished just as she was, not for what she hadn't yet done or who she had to be for someone else. She didn't have to fit into his category. Now, she wasn't going to stay there, but that was the jumping off point. And so this interchange now where it had been building up in relationship and who's the Messiah and who is all of this, she comes to him and she's overwhelmed with gratitude, overwhelmed with with joy and and sorrow and and everything. And it just goes spilling out. And so Jesus mentions that However she got it, and yes, it was a nest egg, and yes, it was year's wages, and, 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 and all of these stigmas that are with us, but Jesus recognized that she had made a decision that she was going to use this for his burial, and she had decided that this was the moment. She was overwhelmed with forgiveness. She was overwhelmed with gratitude. She was overwhelmed with love. She put herself in the most vulnerable position. She did not care what other people thought. They'd already made it perfectly clear. She only cared what Jesus thought. And she put herself in the most low position possible, as though she couldn't get any lower. In a sense, she had been trying to, through her acting out, to lift herself up from the gravity that just kept pulling her down, gravity of her heart and brokenness. But now she made herself as low as possible, knowing that God was going to lift her up. She didn't take, just take the place of a servant in cleaning off the grime and the d- dirt and the manure from the, from the toenails and the feet uh, of a guest. But she is crying. She's pouring her life savings. She's kissing. She's wiping with her hair. Unbound hair was a stigma. You know, all the wheels had come off and it was just pure devotion. Judas didn't have that devotion because he didn't have the intimacy. No one else knew what to do because they didn't have the intimacy. In a sense, their righteousness hurt them more than her sin hurt her. Because their righteousness made them think that now I have to, having begun this way, I have to finish this way. I have to keep it up. I have to keep maintaining. And this is how I have to be to Jesus. And I have to be appropriate. And I can't lose it like that. Whereas for her, she was stripped. And all she saw was her need. And she saw the provision. And it was just connecting the dots, the gratitude. Does that flip the story around how you see Mary? How you see Mary and Martha? This flips it around even more. What Mary did and what Jesus himself said, this wasn't hindsight, this wasn't a theologian saying, and this was symbolic of this and a type of Christ we find and blah, blah, blah. This is Jesus saying, nailed it, stuck her landing, she got it right. She anointed me for my burial. Okay, anointing is a festive thing. This is the most solemn thing possible. And so he's saying that she saw far beyond what anyone else did. Rather than just the initial, here you go, she, she, she saw deeper and more intimately than anyone ever could. And she fulfilled the role of a priest. The head priest was an anointing Christ. 
No one in the leading council was anointing Christ. None of the scribes, none of the teachers, none of the rulers, none of the insiders, none of the professionals, none of them anointed Christ. Who did God himself choose to be the one that would anoint his very son for burial? The most sacerdotal, the most priestly, the most holy, the most mojo thing, this side of glory that could be done after baptism, you know, for, for Christ. What is it? Who did he choose? He chose Mary. Why? Because she was a stinking sinner? Certainly representative, yes. But because she allowed herself to be known. She allowed herself to be free, to, to, to expose herself before God, and there was intimacy. And so because she allowed that intimate interaction, God allowed it the other way around. God saw her heart and not the surface, and so now she repays the favor, so to speak. She just didn't stop at a Messiah that's going to meet my needs, a Messiah that's going to restore my glory, a Messiah that's going to answer all of my prayers that everyone else was, including Judas. Incidentally, and we'll see this in a couple, three weeks, what's the difference between Judas and a Pharisee? There's absolutely no difference whatsoever. What's the difference between Judas and a Peter? Intimacy. And that's, that, this, that story begins right here. And so from all the people that got it right, from all the people that looked right, all the people that smelled right, all the people that began so well, who did God choose? The one who wanted him. Who did God allow himself to be more intimate with? The one who allowed God to be more intimate with them. God truly shares his secrets with his lovers. And he invites all of us into deeper intimacy and the qualification alone for that is that we want him, that we want him more, that we see him more as he is, that we don't see his desire to know us, to use us, to, to, to be more in us as, as contingent upon our service or our faithfulness or our duty or our track record or our performance, but that we can also let go of that and we see it, his passion for us, his delight in us. And the rest of this is just the details and working it out. We're all kings or a kingdom of priests. Far beyond whatever we think we could contribute in this world through our skills, through our job, through our opportunities, through our net worth, through our relationship. Whatever we think we can do, we can contribute so far beyond that in the role of a priest. And it's based simply on intimacy. How much have we allowed God into us the real heart, the real person. And then finally we see that this extravagance of this act that Jesus calls out and that we have a much longer story on of surrender, of trust, of risk, that we see this act as a mirror of who God really is to us. And that's the reveal. That's why we had Judas reacting one way, Jesus himself acting, reacting another way. The, do we appreciate the extravagance of the incarnation, the extravagance of the creation, the extravagance of so much time, so much stuff, so much matter, so much patience, so much grace, so much intentionality, so much God waiting and letting stories fit together and unfold and work together, the extravagance of how much time God spends to arrive at each one of our lives, the extravagance of right now God bearing up our sins, our failures, our disappointments and how it affects him. And he sees the end from the beginning and he says, it is still worth it. And I have taken care of business that, that this isn't going to get in the way. 
Do we see the extravagance of eternity? The act that this woman did was costly, was reckless, way beyond sincere, pure, devoted, single-minded, gracious, loving, at-risk, vulnerable, trusting, intentional, giving all. Do you know what that's a description of? It's a description of Jesus. God in Christ reconciling the world. God in Christ entreating us for surrender, for intimacy, for trust. And so we have a mirror image. The whole second part of the book now is kicked off with this act. The greatest witness, the resurrection of Lazarus. And now, now the next part um, tied together here. Pure intimacy and trust. That gets messy. That includes ugly crying. That includes dirt and muck in your hair. That includes not caring what other people say. But is born out of pure devotion and surrender and grace. And the beautiful, wonderful news. And I believe why John kicked it off this way. And why Jesus brought it to such attention. And why the early church said, man, there is something here. Is that any one of us can be a priest. On task. Intimate. Focus, imbued with power, delighted over by God, growing way beyond. And the cool thing is, it isn't based on the amount of Marthaism. We need Marthas. If we didn't have Marthas, nothing would get done. Nothing would get done. And in, in the interchange, to be fair, Jesus had his relationship with Martha, which was very different than Mary, and they're both intimate, meeting him where they're at. But it's our engagement in the kingdom isn't based on that. That's the outworking of it. Our engagement is, do we see ourselves in Mary? Do we see ourselves as having been forgiven much, we are able to love much? Have we gotten in touch with the depth of our sin and separation and the amount of love that God has for us? That if not now, but some point in our lives, we are ugly crying. We are single-minded in our devotion. There isn't anything we wouldn't give up or give away or do for Christ. And it's going to be a roller coaster and it's putting it together. I get that. But to be brought to that point of, of love and trust and power and intimacy... That is sacerdotal, that is priestly, that is power, that is no other place God would rather be. And so I hope this week we can see that what God does for us is way beyond, is risky, is extravagant. He makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself out there that we could know this level of relationship and power and trust. I so often thought that Mary was the good disciple. She was the one that got it right. Martha was too busy being busy with ministry in the kingdom, and, and Mary's just there learning and being the trooper. But when I tied, when, and it's pretty clear, all three are the same story. It really flips it around to this is all of us. Any of us, any of us can worship God in intimacy and freedom and joy in being a Mary. And it doesn't come about through more performance. It comes about through more surrender. It doesn't come about through more engagement and faithfulness. This is an outworking, don't get me wrong. But it comes about through that interaction of the heart that we can be at our worst. And it's through that we see the very best that God has for us. Let's pray. God, the limitations of my own life, my hurts, my disappointments, my pride and arrogance where I think I'm right, um, and the much smaller subsection where I know I'm right. Um, all the areas, Father, that's the extent of my life. Please don't let that be the extent 
of the intimacy I'm able to allow with you, of the trust that I have for you. I can only trust you as far as I I could see you or smell you or throw you. But I know that's my default, Lord. Help me to trust way beyond where it hurts, way beyond where I'm broken, way beyond where I don't have the answers, way beyond where I'm not in control or cannot determine the outcome in a favorable way for my image and ego, but that I can make myself low as you made yourself low. You displayed total vulnerability. You completely trusted us knowing we're going to hurt you. That maybe, just maybe, we could have intimacy. The pure, white-hot delight of your heart to be known as we are and to be loved. And that we, Father, despite ourselves, would be able to return the favor. Indeed, not want to do anything else as we see more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your compassion. We love you and we thank you. 